Hi, my name is David Elstein, and this is the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery podcast. Each episode is designed to help busy orthopedic surgeons learn more about the ABUS and board certification. On this episode, we talk with hand surgeon Dr. Michael Bednar. Dr. Bednar, who has served on the ABUS board directors for nine years, is now ABUS Associate Executive Director. As is a part-time physician, Dr. Bednar will continue to treat patients in Chicago three days a week. Dr. Bednar is ABUS board certified, participating in the ABUS Maintenance of Certification Program, and has ABUS Subspecialist Certification in Surgery with Hand. Hi, Dr. Bednar. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Thanks for having me again. You're welcome. So you've been involved with the ABUS as a volunteer for more than a decade. What made you interested in joining the ABUS initially? Well, initially, I was asked to have involvement with the ABUS as a question writer for the hand certification examination. It wasn't really something I thought about doing before, but an opportunity came up. Like for many of us, these opportunities pop up. Some you try and decide it just isn't right for you. Um, but this one really, I thought, would be a great challenge. The challenge of writing questions that are clinically applicable when you got your assignment about writing questions, it pushed you to go back and think about patients that you had had with the condition that you are being asked to write for. It made you go back into the records and see how they did. And so it was a learning experience uh, uh, to write questions and then to learn how to appropriately write questions. You see, after the questions are written, they're reviewed by a group of editors and the editors are going to change the questions to make sure that they're all the similar style. When examinees are taking questions, we, we want to be in that same mindset that the questions all look alike. You don't want to have one question where you're asked for the best answer, and then the next question, it's all the, all the following are true except, and you need to choose a negative question. So the editors go over the question, and then there's a meeting called a question writing task force where all of the people who have written questions review all the questions that are written from the year. That's another huge learning experience because not only do you see how other people write questions and what they think is clinically relevant, but also it's a time where we wordsmith each other's questions, making sure that the question is really the best possible one that it can be. You know, when you're writing a question, Probably the hardest part is getting four good distractors, four good wrong answers. If they're obviously wrong, it's not a very good question because people are going to see through that and know that the correct answer is the only one that's left. But on the other hand, if the question is too close to being, if the answer is too close to being true, well, that makes it hard as well because it's hard to differentiate whether that answer is truly wrong. So you learn a lot from everyone during the time. So the combination of uh, learning about question writing, being able to reduce questions, the camaraderie of being with a group of surgeons who care enough about the profession that they're willing to volunteer their time to the important task is really what drew me in. So I started with that, moved on then to being an oral board examiner. And again, it's a really positive experience to be a board examiner. You know, the vast majority of candidates who come to take the oral board examinations are well prepared and they show just the outstanding orthopedic care that's being delivered in our community. And I'll agree, it's difficult to give up a week of practice in the summertime to be in Chicago to be an oral board examiner. 
that combination of seeing the great work that the applicants are doing, the fellowship between examiners, and knowing that you're doing something to gain the public trust really made an event that I look forward to every year. So that's how I got started and then was just fortunate to become a candidate to be elected to the Board of Orthopedic Surgery and uh, fortunate enough truly to be chosen. I had heard from so many people how meaningful board service was to them. And I have to admit, it's been the same for me. It's been the greatest honor in my professional career to be a director of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. I'm inspired every day by the dedication, the devotion, and the passion that the board as well as the staff has for protecting the public and making sure that uh, the appropriate standards of orthopedic care are present in our country. Excellent. You know, you sort of hinted out that you mentioned on the board for nine years, you served as president, but what, if, what exactly does the ABUS board do? What is it responsible for? The main job of the board is to protect the public. Unlike other professional organizations, the academy, the subspecialty organizations, who really work for their members, the surgeons, we work for the public. And we do so by setting standards for education, for practice, and for conduct in orthopedic surgery. Now, it begins with residents, and the whole knowledge, skills, behavior program is all about making sure that the standards have been met during residency, such that the residents are eligible to take the certification examination. For those of us in practice, whether certifying for the first time or recertifying, it really is this four-part process that the board is very actively engaged in. We need to make sure that all orthopedic surgeons have professional standards, that they have a full unrestricted license to practice medicine in their state, and they have unrestricted hospital privileges for their specialty. Um, need to show evidence of cognitive expertise, that you have the knowledge. For the part two examination, it means that you've passed the part one written examination. And for those who are recertifying, the different mechanisms that we have to show cognitive expertise. We had the web-based longitudinal assessment, read 15 articles and answer two questions on each of those 15 articles and do so five years during your recertification time. Uh, Computer-based recertification examinations, and there's an examination for each of the different subspecialties of orthopedics as well as for general orthopedics or an oral examination. Performance and practice, peer review. Public wants to know that we are considered in good standing within our community. And so peer review is an integral portion of that. And then review of a caseload, be it for the part two examinees, in which it's a six month consecutive caseload, or for those of us who recertify 75 cases uh, or a minimum of 35 cases collected over nine months to show the type of work that we're doing. And it's also a time for us to go back and review the cases done and complications which may have occurred. And then finally, for the recertification folks, uh, self-assessment. The 40 SAE and 240 CME credits that require over 10 years is what most states require to maintain state licensure. Uh, and it's important for all of us to keep up to date in our profession and our subspecialty. So all those things are what the board does to make sure that written exams, oral exams, credentialing, 
continuing medical education uh, uh, through GME and maintenance of certification uh, are, are all taken care of. Excellent. So this associate executive director position is a new position. Can you explain what your role is? Sure. Um, well, for the associate executive director, the, um, the reason that we came up to develop this position is that the amount of work that the board does has really grown significantly over the past nine years that I've been a director. I mean, during this time alone, we've added a number of computer-based recertification exams to make sure that all nine orthopedic specialties, as well as a general orthopedic uh, examination, are covered. During this time, we initiated the web-based longitudinal assessment. I mentioned that earlier, but every year, we put up over 200 knowledge sources. Supplements get to choose those 15 knowledge sources that are most pertinent to their practice, and then answer two questions, meaning 400 questions are written every year for the, for the WLA uh, program. The board has embarked on an initiative to make sure that the residents meet the knowledge standard. Um, and so we partnered with the Academy of Orthopedic Surgery on the orthopedic in training examination. In order for the residents to determine how close they are in their knowledge assessment to pass the part one examination, we've added a number of equator questions to the OITE exam. So these are questions that the Academy and the board both review. The questions are placed onto the part one examination we can determine how many people on the part one examination questions get uh, part one examination get the questions right. The residents then take the same questions, and from this, we can give them some guidelines in terms of how close they are uh, to passing or exceeding the passing scale for the part one examination. Just helps them to figure out where they are in their knowledge base, where they need to grow. So as the amount of work has increased, it became obvious that uh, uh, an associate executive director was needed to help offload some of the administrative work being done by David Martin, our executive director. So my primary responsibility in this job is taking over the administrative work for the, uh, the large number of written examinations that the board uh, undertakes every year. So obviously, you know, you've, you have a busy hand-straight surgery practice. Why did you decide to you know, apply for the associate executive director position? What interested you in that position? Well, as we talked about earlier, my involvement with the board began with writing examination questions for the hand surgery examination. Um, it grew while I was a director. I was both co-chair and then chair of the written examination committee. It was during my time on those committees that we expanded the number of computer-based recertification examinations. There's a process to make a new examination. First, the blueprint has to be drawn up for the examination. So a blueprint is the material that's going to be tested uh, in that particular specialty. In order to write the blueprint, the way we do that is we ask the academy, we asked the subspecialty organization for that particular subspecialty to nominate surgeons, uh, board certified orthopedic surgeons, uh, both from academic and private practice settings to come to a blueprint meeting. And we sit down and talk about the variety of topics. So for hand surgery, 
We talk about bone, tendon, vessels, nerves, skin, congenital, make decisions about what part of the examination should be dedicated to each of those areas, make some decisions about what's not going to be on the examination. And from this, then, uh, our partners can fill in the blueprint to create a form, to create an examination, which will be representative of what this group of orthopedic surgeons feels uh, a board-certified orthopedic surgeon needs to know. After the blueprint is done, the form is then made, those questions are filled in, and then that form gets reviewed in a variety of different settings. After the examinations are administered, uh, then the psychometricians review uh, the data uh, to determine what the standard, passing standard for the examination will be. So after doing this for a number of examinations from, cert from the recertification as well as the certification examinations, I just thought I had the experience uh, to perform the tasks that would be required of the job. Currently, I'm in my, I was in my ninth uh, year of my 10-year term as a director to the board, and I just felt that taking this position would be a way for me to continue to serve the board and our profession into the future. Very good. So with the popularity of the ABUS web-based longitudinal assessment pathway, what do you see for the future of the, you know, the traditional computer-based recertification and examinations? I think that our diplomats are going to tell us what the future of the computer-based examinations are. We really do listen to what people have to say. And what right now what we mostly hear is that people have loved the web-based longitudinal assessment vast majority of people are choosing that form of knowledge assessment rather than the computer-based exams. That's not to say that there still isn't a significant number of people who want the computer-based examinations. We have had to change to offering the computer-based examinations every other year rather than every year because as the numbers have gone down, the numbers of people taking the examination, it makes statistical analysis more difficult. So by offering it every other year, the numbers will be large enough that we can set a valid standard for the examination to determine who passes and who doesn't pass the examination. Um, but we're going to continue the computer-based examinations until our diplomates tell us that they would prefer a different method. That'll be down the road. So as we record this, we're only a few days away from the administration of the ABUS Part 1 examination. How do you see that? examination changing, if at all, over, say, the next five or 10 years? You know, there are great changes underway, but we hope that no one really notices that anything has changed at all. Uh, and what I mean by that is for over 30 years, we've partnered uh, with the National Board of Medical Examiners to produce our questions, produce and analyze our questions. So they have been our partners with drawing blueprints, uh, editing the questions, uh, and then doing the psychometric analysis afterwards uh, to determine the standard for the examination. A number of years ago, four or five years ago, they told us that uh, they no longer are going to be in the business of graduate medical education examinations. They want to dedicate all their, all their efforts to medical school uh, examination. So as such, we've We've changed the group that we work with. We now work with the examination folks at the American Board of Medical Specialties. 
Well, many of the individuals working for them in the past had worked for the NBME, so there is certain symmetry between the two organizations. Our hope is that the only thing our diplomats really notice is that they've changed where they're taking the examination. They're no longer at Prometric Centers, but at Pearson View. But we're looking to make this a seamless transition from one group to another and offering the same high-level, highly valid examinations that we have in the past. So I know for you personally, you recently recertified for the third time. Why is ABUS board certification, maintenance of certification important to you? You know, I, I don't think it really matters if you're recertifying for the first time or for the third time. I think that those four parts of MOC are applicable to all of us. Uh, I think it's important that you show that you have an unrestricted license, that you have good professional standing, that you have good peer review, that the people around you consider you to be a good ethical caring physician. I think it's important that we demonstrate to the public that we are keeping up with current knowledge, and that's the reason for the CME and SAE. And likewise, cognitive expertise. It's your choice. If you choose to read 15 articles a year for five years and answer questions and thereby learn new knowledge, or if you want to demonstrate that you have attained and maintained a body of knowledge that's demonstrated through the computer-based recertification examinations, or you choose to do an oral examination because your practice is so unique, deals with such a finite area that you want to be able to demonstrate your expertise in that area. For all these reasons, I think that it is equally important uh, be it your first time or your third time you certifying that you demonstrate to the public that you're maintaining these standards. What do you say to people thinks, you know, that since they have been practicing surgery for three decades or more that they know it all, so why should they have to be recertified? Well, things change in medicine. When I was a fellow, distal radius fractures were treated mostly with external fixatives. There were no volar locking plates at that time. So if I were to say that I learned everything I needed to learn in fellowship when I finished that in 1992, I'm not sure I'd be treating many fractures at the highest level of care. So that's just one small example of how things change with time. Um, I think it is incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we are practicing the best medicine that we can. And that's why we need to continue in the MOC process and not rely on grandfathering. Thank you, Dr. Bednar, for your time. For more information about ABUS, go to abus.org. And if you enjoyed this episode of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts so you know the next episode is posted. 